Please note, Three Old Goalies podcast may not be suitable for goalkeepers under the age of 17. You see, the Three Old Goalies are, well, old and sometimes grumpy and might just be nibbling at the edges of Alzheimer's. So we're not always, how would you say it, filtered. So parents, have earmuffs at the ready because listener discretion is highly advised. Opinions expressed on Three Old Goalies podcasts are ours and ours alone. They're, of course, correct, but there are opinions. Three Old Goalies is a net performance adventure. Like us on Facebook at Net Performance Goalkeeper Education Co. and at Three Old Goalies on Instagram. Three Old Goalies is produced by John Boa Media. For more information, email Bose at johnboamedia.com or you can see him on Instagram at John Boa Media. Music for our shows is provided by Floodgate Operators, a bluegrass band out of Crested Butte, Colorado. For more information, go to www.floodgateoperators.com and be sure to check them out on YouTube. Are we going to say that? Are we recording? Oh, yeah, we're recording. So we'll get it. We'll- no, sorry, no, no. sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to. Deutsche, I'll stop asking questions. I'm sorry, Deutsche. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. My apologies. Yeah. No, it was funny. One of my very first meetings I had with a fan in this whole thing, um, he suggested it. So it was actually October 20th. Um, he, no, it was probably before that. It was early on in the process. It was, uh, we had a, a socially distant lunch outdoors at a Mexican restaurant in like uh, Buffalo Grove, Illinois, a guy named Brian Costin. And I'd met him once or twice before, was impressed with just what a smart guy he was. And I don't know if you know this, but not all passionate soccer fans are smart. (laughs) Some of them are, as it turns out. And I've always been... you know, I've been impressed by Brian uh, following. He's passionate about the open system of soccer, promotion, relegation, all that. I mean, he wants um, change in U.S. Soccer Federation, all that stuff. But he, he's he's not a wacko. I mean, he's a, a, a smart, level-headed guy. And so I had uh, lunch with him. One of the first things he did, we sat down and he said, I've got the name of your team. And I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. He said, Chicago House. And I'm like, oh, like the music. He's like, yes. And immediately it starts coming to my mind. Every game's going to be a house party. It pays tribute to history of Chicago culturally, yet it's still relevant today. And I was like, that's interesting. I went into the, not just that meeting. I went into this whole project thinking the name of the team was going to be Chicago Hope, Hope for mm, right. Obama, not not Hope for the TV show. And because uh, I wanted this team to have a socially progressive platform, I thought it would resonate with Chicago and truly reflect what Chicago's values are. Uh, but I came out of that lunch with Brian thinking, no, nope, I think it's going to be uh, it's going to be House. Uh, that being said, we did. We went through the whole process. We got public submissions, four to five hundred of them, which you know, whatever. We only had it open for like ten days of submissions, and we got that many. 
And then um, internally, we narrowed it to 68 names. So we could do a, a March Madness style uh, fun oh, cool. poll. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it was fun. Yeah, it, it droned on longer than it probably should have. It went for three or four months. Uh, I think the fans got tired of it. They just wanted to know what the heck the name was. <laughs> That's great. Well, our, our guest tonight is Peter Wilt, who uh, is a guy who has uh, John Bush and I were talking earlier today. And Bushy, by the way, thank you for joining us. Bushy is, is filling in for uh, John Boa, who is somewhere in, in Colorado. We're not sure where. Um, out on sabbatical, right? Out he's on sabbatical. He's on sabbatical, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Peter, welcome to the three O goalies, and 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 one of the I can I can tell you before I turn it over to Greg, who is our sort of our Mike Wallace of the of the show. Uh, he does all the interviews, um, but I was I, w- I had to go up to Ohio last week, and as I was driving up there, I was listening to the NHL Network on satellite radio because of Bushy and I grew up playing hockey and and I've always kind of thought that the NHL did, has done things right in pro sports in the United States simply because you know they they go their own way they they know what they are selling they you know they don't you know they they don't get into big arguments about it they have the NHL and then they have the farm leagues under it you know and uh, I don't know if it was just on this day that I was listening, but all the guests that they had on the show were either, you know, they were now coaches or GMs or players. And every single one of them during the day, and this is a five-hour drive, kept talking about how important the developmental system in the NHL was to them getting to the big show, you know? And a couple of them, only went up for, you know, a cup of coffee, you know, I mean, with a team, you know, maybe played 10 games and then went into coaching or they went into management management or something like that. And, I, and it, it kind of struck me and Greg and I talked about this after our last podcast. Uh, it kind of struck me how these guys, you know, regardless of what, what level it was, ECHL, American hockey league, international hockey league, all the way down to juniors, they they all emphasized how much how important development was for them as they were coming up the ladder to the NHL, and and I thought you know what we don't have that in U.S. soccer. We have a lot of we have a lot of teams and and similar to what you've you've made a career of Peter of putting together some of these teams where kids have a chance to 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 be a pro to get their foot in the door of playing pro. But we don't, it doesn't seem to me, and maybe you can shed some light on this, it doesn't seem to me that there is a pyramid, uh, it, you know, the kit that, that the MLS, who is purportedly the top level of, our, of the game in our country, looks to the leagues underneath it to, to get players from, you know. It's, and, and I say this all the time on the show, you know, the MLS does a very good job of developing the CONCACAF nations, <laughs> but they don't do a very good job of developing American players, you know, and there's always the exception. I mean, there's the John Bushes of the world. And I mean, we all, you know, but it just seems to me that, you know, teams like Chicago house should be producing players that eventually will get to the MLS, you know, and then from the MLS, eventually somebody will get to the national team, but we always kind of look at, well, let's get them straight to the national team. 
You know, if they're not good enough for the national team, they're not good enough to play. Well, it's, it's so, to me, it's so wrong. So when I was talking to Greg, I said, we got to get somebody on who's been there, done this a lot more than we have. And he brought up your name. And so we appreciate you being here. And um, without further ado, I'll, I'll turn it over to Greg and then hopefully we can discuss this a little bit more. <laughs> well, thank you, Eric. And Peter, thank you for uh, taking time. I know you're really, really busy. And uh, John Bush, I can't thank you enough for filling in. Glad to have you on as usual. Uh, not, so you, not it was so, a big challenge to fill in for Boa. Yeah, okay? yeah. <laughs> I just got to talk about Liverpool every 10 minutes. Right, no. I'll yeah, exactly. throw it out there every once exactly. in a while. I'm okay. Exactly. Uh, just so you guys know, he Peter is a uh, – He's had four professional soccer league championships, which is pretty crazy, you know, um, but very, very unique. He's a former MLS uh, executive of the year with the Chicago Fire. Um, we're going to really rewind this and you guys are going to, you know, let Peter, you know, share with you some of the stories of, quote, the minor leagues, because this guy certainly did it, uh, lived it, uh, owned it. Um, some of the stuff I dug up is just pretty incredible. So Peter, I want to dive right into it. You know, you're from the Midwest, Illinois, uh, spent a ton of time, obviously in Wisconsin. How did you get affiliated, uh, you know, starting off with the pro teams because you started off not in soccer, but in baseball and baseball led you to, uh, the Milwaukee wave. So share with us that part of the journey starting off. Gosh, that was decades ago. You're going to make me think. Actually, hockey is what got me into soccer. So I'm happy to talk hockey with you. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, when I was in college, I worked for the Milwaukee Brewers. I, I worked in baseball, but it's like as an usher or whatever. My first real job out of college was the Milwaukee Admirals, which was IHL at the time, which was the equivalent of the ECHL now. Although when I was there, we actually became a Blackhawks top farm team for one year. Everyone thought, it was 84, 85. Everyone thought, oh my God, they're gonna be a top farm team. They're gonna win the IHL, just hand them the Turner Cup before the season starts. We ended up being in last place. <laughs> it, I mean, it was, it was just an awful year. We won't have to get deep into it. But Eric, before I get off of hockey, I wanna ask you a question. Why do you think hockey, more so than any other pro sport, has brother combinations or father-sons that go on to the pros? Uh, you know what I think it is uh, because, uh, as I said before, you know they it's it's a hockey's a very small society, particularly at the pro levels. Okay, um, it's a it's an expensive sport, as you know, for for the average kid to to take up. Um, it's regionalized, or it used to be. Nowadays, you know, uh, Austin Matthews coming out of Phoenix. You know, it was interesting the other day on the. Uh, when they were playing at Tahoe, they had three or four guys who had never played outdoors. And they said that was a first between the, between the four teams, there weren't many, but they said, we've got guys on the, on all four of these teams on Las Vegas and Colorado and Boston and Philly, some of whom had never skated on a pond, right. Had never played. Yeah. Had never played outdoors. They said, that's a first. And, but I think it's because, you know, um, uh, I think it's because, you know, the, the, it's, it's the old rink rat thing, Peter, you know, that you take your, you know, you, it, you take your kids 
to the locker room. You take them to the rink. They grow up playing. You know, obviously, dad can get stuff for free. So, you know, getting, getting equipment's not a problem. Um, and, you know, that's what dad does. And so he takes them along. And there, you know, there are, I, uh, you're right, there's a, there are, there pro- I don't know if anybody's ever done a study on this, but there's probably more father son or brother brother combinations in hockey than in any other sport. For sure. The Sutter Uh, brothers alone. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I I think it is. There's a a small universe of of talent. Uh, There's also a small universe of fans. I grew grew up a Blackhawk fan in the 60s and 70s. And um, the the joke there was there's only 20,000 Blackhawk fans in all of Chicago. But they're at every single game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. They're so passionate. Yeah, and, and there's some truth to that. So I did uh, minor league hockey uh, growing up, uh, again out of college, and that's where I learned the business. I didn't have sports admin back when I was in college, so I learned it, a small organization, seven employees. I did everything there was to do: ticket sales, sponsor sales, promotions, game ops, community relations. That was my education. Did that for four years. The indoor soccer team, the Milwaukee Wave, the oldest pro soccer team, ongoing pro soccer team in America, um, uh, needed help. They had soccer people, but they didn't have sports business people. And I actually told the owner, even though I was a Sting fan um, growing up and stuff, I didn't really know soccer. I didn't play soccer. They didn't offer it. And I told the owners, I said, I don't know soccer. They said, good. We're tired of soccer people telling us how to run our business. Right, right. As, well, I know sports business. I can help you there. Yeah. And especially if there was indoor soccer. There was a lot of corollaries with minor league hockey. And um, we had some success with the Wave indoors. I was hired to run the outdoor t- or the indoor team in Chicago, the power. Uh, and we had success on and off the field. Pato Marhedic was yeah. our, our yeah. coach. What a guy. Yeah. I love Pato. And uh, had success there. And one thing led to another. Minnesota Thunder. Uh, Mr. Lagos uh, and Tom Angstrom called me up. You know Tom Bushy, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, Peter, yeah. Peter, I don't want to interrupt, but but I, I want to drop a, a club in here. You just sort of overlooked real quick. Bushy, I, I'm going to pull one out here. The Chicago Riot. The Chicago Riot. So I know that, the Chicago Sting. I don't know the Chicago Riot. It was a one-hit wonder, man. One of the teams I started, it was like 2010, 11 indoors. So I'm running the Milwaukee Wave the second time uh, after I had started the Chicago Red Stars. Okay. Did a year with the, the Wave the second time, the major indoor soccer league, 35 days before the season starts. The commissioner calls an emergency call of the, 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 the four teams. He said, I thought we we're going to be six teams. I found out this morning. Philadelphia and Rockford aren't coming in. We only have four teams. What do you want to do? And, you know, like, you know four is barely a poker group, much less a league. <laughs> um, Jeff Kraft was on the call because he had been the coach of Rockford the year before. And he said, well, I got the players. They all live in Chicago. Why don't we just start a, put a team in Chicago? And I said, well, we still don't have an owner. And... Um, uh, the commissioner said, well, if you, each of the four of you put in a couple hundred grand or not even that 75 grand, we'll have enough to get through the year. And oh, we need someone to run it. Well, the Milwaukee owner volunteered me. Like, <laughs> said, well, Pete, you know, Chicago, why don't you go do it? So with 35 days notice, I went to start an indoor team in Chicago. 
And I'm going to lease at the Odium, this little, I was going to call it dump, but <laughs> they might be listening. A, a wonderful <laughs> suburban facility. <laughs> 2,000 seats in, this, in Villa Park, Illinois. Um, I, I hired a bunch of friends. Uh, we did some stuff that the Department of Labor, if they find out about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we put it together and we got through the year. There were unpaid bills at the end of the year. There were players that didn't get paid the last month and I'm embarrassed about it. Um, I put in, I never really publicly said it, but I put in 50 grand of my own money. Uh, I didn't get paid either. It's a lot more than that in the long run. I wasn't an owner. I was just an executive, a hired hand. Uh, Players are still mad at me about it, but yeah. Yeah. That being said, we darn near made the playoffs. The only reason we didn't make the playoffs is because the referees in the league didn't want us to because it would have cost the owners more money. Right. And business-wise, I think we did better than any other team, which means we <laughs> lost less money. <laughs> I mean, I just did. But it was, it was right. I'm actually as proud or more proud about putting that thing together on short notice than anything else I've done in my career. And it was fun. We, 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 we did have a lot of fun. Even the, the players that didn't get paid at the end of the year, I think they would say they had, had a good time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, w- when I interrupted you there, you were about to talk about the Minnesota Thunder, which you were an owner. I was going to ask you, before you go into that story, did you want to be an owner of Minnesota Thunder? Or did no. you, as you started to get, you know, talk, someone sort of dragged you along? Because you were an owner for four years. And what I find interesting, the first year, there's nine of you, the second 10, the third 12, and the fourth 13. So all these people, you guys must have just, you know, come on, this is a great thing. So tell this journey of the Minnesota Thunder. Thunder was great. I enjoyed it. So the Thunder started as um, uh, basically a high school club team, a version of the St. Paul Blackhawks. Mr. Lagos was a high school teacher math teacher in St. Paul, Minnesota, and his kids, you know, Manny and Gerard were darn good. Yeah. And Manny's best friend, Tony Sana, wasn't a bad player either. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, one of the other close friends, Amos McGee, went on to play in Major League Soccer. So they had a, a heck of a team with the St. Paul Blackhawks, and they said they started this team, and they did it as an amateur team. They entered the USISL when USISL had like 64 teams. And I think they went 18 and two, won the regular season with unpaid amateur players and all Minnesota players. Mm -hmm. I mean, we always hear about the St. Louis steamers back in the day or whatever, all St. Louis players. This was that version, but all Minnesota players. By the time I got there in in 95, they had a ringer, uh, Pierre Maurice, a former... uh, First division uh, league player in France with uh, Nantes had married a Minnesota girl and moved to Minnesota. He had retired from soccer. He's like 37 years old, and he was convinced to come out to training one day. And oh my God, he had a left foot in some ways as golden as Christo Stoichkov. I mean, he's much more delicate than Christo. Christo could boom it, yeah, but, right. but Pierre could put it on a dime from 40 yards away with his left foot. And other than that, all Minnesota players. 
And that was really a neat thing. So 1995 was the last year before Major League Soccer. And Minnesota Thunder, in our first year as a pro team, so I was brought in to move them from amateur to pro, get sponsors, tickets sold, sign the players, give them a little bit of money, that sort of thing. And But I don't disrupt the team. I think we pretty much had the same team as the year before. We made it to the finals of the USISL, the last, I, I call it the last pro game in America before MLS started against the Long Island Rough Riders. Mm. They were experimenting with a ton of weird, wacky rules in the USISL yep. back then. Yep. One of them was a countdown clock or the, a, a stop clock, bowing out of play. They, they stopped, but it was only 60 minutes, so it ended up being about the same amount of time. Anyways, we're tied one-to-one, 10 seconds left in regulation. Chris Armas is on Long Island Rough Riders. Tony Miola's in goal, Court Weinstein, Mike McBasters. They're just loaded. Armas tracks down a ball uh, uh, down the right side on the end line in our uh, zone just outside our penalty area, crosses it in, five seconds left, Giovanni Savarese puts it past John Swallow for the game winner. Five seconds left on the clock. We lose two to one uh, in our first year. Uh, But I, I say, I say it was the last pro soccer game in uh, the U.S. before MLS, uh, Peter Hattrip corrected me uh, last year. He said, no, the A-League, which was a competing league, oh, that's right. yeah. had, they went later. The Seattle Sounders and, I don't know, Atlanta yeah. Silverbacks or something yeah. Yeah, played a few weeks later. But those were the, the dark ages of American soccer. And, Bushy, you lived through them. I mean, those were special. You guys, players in that era, appreciated – what you had when MLS started. Yeah. Today's players, and I'm sounding like the grumpy old man get off my lawn yelling at the cloud. Today's players don't appreciate what they have. Evie and I have this conversation like every other day. We alternate <laughs> we alternate days who's grumpy that day. You yeah. know, we just yeah. alternate. But <laughs> you, you're right because of what we had to go through, you know, and, and yet as Evie and I talk about, you know, we we both grew up playing hockey, you know, you you know that's where you had the most fun, you know, and I look back to, you know, my young days and I mean, I spent my 21st birthday somewhere in the middle of Canada. I don't even know where we were on a bus going from game to game. They stopped and bought me a six pack of beer in the middle, you know, in the middle of night somewhere. I don't even know where the hell we were, you know, but like you still remember those stories. I mean, just listening to you, Peter, talk about, you know, back in the nineties, you know, I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning. You're, you know, you're talking about Armas (laughs) and Miola, you know, playing for the Long Island Rough Riders. It's, but those were the fun days. And and like you said, when you finally made it, you did appreciate it even more because you knew what you went through. hundred percent. I mean, I've had this conversation with CJ Brown because he, 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 our new head coach with uh, Chicago house, uh, he lived it with the yeah. San Francisco uh, Seals yeah. back in the day before going to the fire in MLS. And for the first three or four years I was with the fire, which in the fire started two years after MLS did. I think for the most part, all the players appreciated what they had because for the most part, those guys all started in USISL or indoor leagues. And, and they recognized that this wasn't normal. Uh, the other thing I want to point out is bus trips. And you alluded to it, Bushy, yeah. is that it builds camaraderie. 
Yeah. And guys will complain about eight hours on a bus or 12 hours on a bus or even six hours on a bus. And there's good reason to complain about it. <laughs> that being said, it's special. It yeah. builds team camaraderie. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, because when your bus breaks down in the middle of night in the middle of nowhere, you know, yeah. you got to push it. Got to yeah. push it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Two quick bus breakdown stories. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we went on the show for. <laughs> Sorry, Georgia, we just killed your whole thing right now. We're just going Absolutely off, off this stuff. No, no, no. I'm going to blow you away with another little fun fact here, but go on, Peter. I think both of them were with the Milwaukee Way. One, we took a bus from Milwaukee to Memphis. That's not a short trip. And, of course, indoor soccer. So this is middle of the winter. Oof. It breaks down on an interstate on the, <laughs> about a mile short of the border of Arkansas and Tennessee, maybe. I don't know. But there was a truck stop a mile up. So we all got off and we hoofed it through an ice storm to, 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 to and we, we're just walking, sludging our way through. But then we see the welcome to Arkansas sign and then we hoof it just so we could be running across the border, the whole team. And then another one, we're in Ohio, the bus breaks down or flat tire outside of Toledo and we're maybe half a mile short of a, a rest stop or truck stop. So the team all gets off and we start walking along the shoulder uh, to the truck stop. Larry Sales is our trainer. God bless Larry Sales. Former Harlem Globetrotters uh, uh, athletic trainer. And he should not be an athletic trainer in terms of showing the players how to keep care of their body, shall we say. <laughs> Larry's a bigger guy. Yeah. All right. All right. I'm not a small guy, but he makes me look tiny. <laughs> and so Larry and I, and Larry Sunderland, were walking on the, the shoulder when all of a sudden a pickup truck skids out of control, heading right for us. Larry Thunderland and I are able to dodge out of the way. Larry Sales runs straight, and the pickup truck is going after him. It's getting closer. All of a sudden, Larry Sales becomes Ronaldo Nehemiah over a guardrail <laughs> and hurdles his way to safety. The pickup truck rams into the guardrail and bumps off, and Larry's safe, and we're all good. We, By the way, we get to the, 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 the truck stop. Uh, John Delinsky is our, our head coach, uh, may have been player coach at that point, and he organizes a poker game with six or seven players. And an hour or two later, and most of the money is front of JD because he's the coach and he's supposed to win. When an Ohio State trooper walks in, and, <laughs> and, and, and it's a stand cross arm with a big brimmed hat looking over this poker game going on and the pile of money in front of JD with everyone's $8 a day meal money in front yeah, of him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Big money, big, big, big stakes money. game going, big, big stakes game. Big, yeah. And, and JD, the coach, has all the players' money. <laughs> and, and the state trooper casually suggests, gents, I think your game is over. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and yeah, they, JD uh, put his money together and, and they walked. But those were good old days. You have stories like that. You know, I, yeah. I don't know how you get those anymore. Yeah. I, you guys, you're not going to believe who was one of the owners after Peter. And, and we and we all know him. I think, Bushy, you know him. I know uh, uh, Evie and I do. 
Jim, quote unquote, Frosty Frostland. Oh yeah, I actually just talked to him the other day. Just talked to him. Oh the really? Other day. Yeah, yeah. Oh. He we check in every now and again. So okay. He yeah he was one of the owners back in uh, two hundred five to two hundred six for one year. I, I love the fact why he wanted to do it. <laughs> I left to become general manager of the Chicago Fire, so it would have been ninety seven, and I went in to resign to our the chairman of our board, and he said, "Okay, I'll accept your resignation under one condition." you find your replacement. I was like, okay. And, um, and he said, he's gotta be better than you. I was like, oh, gee. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually a low bar, I was happy about that. And so I, I found Bill Manning, uh, who uh, is, is now Toronto FC's president. And uh, Billy took my place. And then when Billy left, gosh, where did he go after Minnesota? I think he went to MLS. I'm not certain. It might have been New York. But so then Billy brought in Frosty. And I had known Frosty from Madison because he was a, a pretty good player at UW. But yeah, he and I still come keep in touch. Yeah. So, Peter, you know, you do the Thunder stuff. Uh, and you, you were starting to talk about uh, MLS and the fire. You're there with the Chicago fire for eight years. How did you end up there? And obviously there's some controversy at the end, um, which I'll let you get into on what happened on, uh, you know, your <clears throat> quote unquote resignation. <laughs> so jump I did not the... resign. <laughs> I never put out one of those fake resigns, resignations. I just let them fire my ass. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, how did you end up? How did you end up there? Um, well, Lee Stern, uh, the owner of the Chicago Sting, uh, founder of the Sting, uh, he he put in a good word for me. He recommended me to Phil Anschutz, and um, because of my work with the Chicago Power back in the day, and Lee knew me from that and thought I would be a good fit. Um, I was one of two or three finalists. Uh, I interviewed with uh, Bob Sanderman, who headed up Phil Anschutz's uh, real estate holdings. And then as a tangent to that, uh, the LA Kings, and then the Colorado Rapids. And then he had it on the Chicago Fire when we were starting. So I interviewed uh, well with Bob Sanderman. He said, yeah, it looks like our guy, um, but we made a mistake in Colorado with the first guy we hired there. We want to be real careful about this one. So why don't you go to New York and talk to the commissioner? Talk to Doug Logan. Uh, Doug and I hit it off real well. Um, he, he kind of picked me as a hired gun. He kind of saw what I was, good, bad, and different, and, and liked me, and, and he recommended me. He said, well, you still got to go through one more. You got to meet with Phil Anschutz. And I'm like, oh, okay. Right. <laughs> I hadn't met too many billionaires up to this point. <laughs> uh, so I, I went up to, to Denver to, to meet with Phil. God, I haven't told this story in a while. Um, I, I, I go to his waiting room and uh, I'm told, well, he's going to be a little while. Why don't you go back to Bob Sanderman's office? I waited there for a while. Dan Counts comes in. He was a Colorado Rapids GM at the time. And a good one, by the way. I, I really respected Dan. And then another veteran of the indoor wars. And Dan came in and he seemed nervous as heck. He was like shaking and rattling. I'm like, I don't know if I want to get into this. <laughs> it turns guys into the nervous wrecks. 
and end up going up talking to to Mr. Anschutz. We we talked for about 15 minutes. I thought it was going pretty well when um, his secretary Mary Ann comes in and says Tim is on the line and needs to ask you a quick question. It's Tim Loiwecki, I, I later learned. And he's like, excuse me, um, I'll be right back. And he goes in, 45 minutes later, <laughs> he finally comes back. He grabs his sport coat, looks at his watch and says, really good to meet you. I've heard all I need to hear. Have a good day. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, geez. That's either really good or probably really bad. <laughs> but I didn't know. And I didn't know for like a week or two. And I finally get a phone call and it was obviously good news because I, I did get the job. So he liked, must have liked what he heard in the 15 minutes. <laughs> what were some of the hardest things that you remember as you tried to put that team together the first few years? Well, because, I mean, because you, you had a lot of success. I mean, people forget you won an MLS cup, uh, three U S open cups, um, supporter shield, uh, all in eight years. So, I mean, obviously you had a pulse on something or you surrounded yourself with a lot of good people because this thing just took off incredibly well. Bushy, were you on the 06 fire team? No, I was not officially on it. I, I spent a lot of time coming up and back with you guys, but I wasn't officially. Yeah. yeah. Because I take credit for that 06 team as well. So instead of three Open Cup championships, Greg, I say it's four. <laughs> I signed every player or I trade every player or I drafted every player that was on that team. Yeah. Just because they fired me the year before doesn't mean I shouldn't take credit for it. <laughs> so I'll take for you. Uh, the hardest part was the very beginning. Um, so I started like July 1st of 97. From July 1st until October 8th when we announced our name and put season tickets on sale, I was the nervous wreck that Dan Counts was that I had seen in, in, in June. Because every single day, Bob Sanderman or Phil Anschutz himself was calling me and asking me, how's it going? What are you doing? Are you doing this? What did you do? How many people did you call? It was micromanagement to the hilt by a billionaire. And I am a nervous wreck because honestly, I wasn't sure I could do the job. I'd had considerable success in Minnesota and with the power and where I'd gone before, but it was lower division it was minor league it was indoor it wasn't major league soccer and it was small staff minnesota thunder you know how big our full-time staff was counting me five two two, <laughs> two. me and kevin wilhelm was the only full-time staff we had now we had a couple of interns that were really good um, our players double dutied uh john mank was a great group ticket sales guy mark abood did camps um, Gerard helped out, Manny helped out. Uh, Mr. Lagos was a dream salesman, uh, but it was all two guys. Um, and then I get to Chicago with a power, and we put together a staff of about 22 people, and it was a little intimidating for me. And, and so there's a lot of pressure on this. And the, 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 the they also, Phil Anchor obviously owned the Colorado Rapids at the time. Well, maybe not obvious, it's obvious to me. But I forget, this was 25 years ago. So, um, and so I was comparing ourselves to the Colorado Rapids. And 
we finally put tickets on sale, announced the name of the team on October 8th, and everything turned 180 degrees. We had considerable media success right off the bat, uh, partly because we spend a boatload of money. This was pre-digital media time, so you didn't have much of a choice if you wanted to get the word out. We spent a million dollars in advertising in the fourth wow. quarter alone. Oh, man. Wow. We knew we were wasting half of our ad buy. We just didn't know which half it was. <laughs> <laughs> but we're getting full-page ads in the Tribune and the Sun-Times and radio and TV and hired top-shelf design folks. Uh, and I hired a great staff. I mean, young. Um, I was 37 years old at the time, and I was the oldest person on our, our, our staff. Talented, hardworking people, good character, communicated well. They went on to become GMs in MLS or running stadiums. Uh, really good, smart people. We did the same thing um, on the field, obviously, hiring Bob Bradley and um, the Eastern block of players of Peter Novak, yeah. Lubosz Kubik, <laughs> Roma Kaseski, and Pedrozny. And, and, and my gosh, within five years, we had a dozen national team players on our roster, um, U.S. And, and international national team players. Can you imagine that? In MLS, a dozen national team players, including Christoph Stoichkov, when he could still play. Right. Yeah, Stoichkov right. and Lothar Mateus were signed on the same day by MLS. One guy came here for vacation. One guy came here to prove himself. Yeah. We got lucky. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, so – Starting October 8th, when we announced the name of the team and put season tickets on sale, it all changed because we sold a ton of tickets. We had more season tickets than the Colorado Rapids had the previous year within a month. And uh, all of a sudden, the pressure was off of me. Uh, and it was because, I mean, I'm not going to be too humble. I, I kind of knew what I was doing. And I'm a good judge of talent and character. And I hired some really good people. I've used that formula wherever I've gone. Yeah. It's obviously been very, very successful. Um, explain, I don't think a lot of people knew, you know, quote unquote, how you did get fired uh, because there was a big, big uproar, uh, big protest, uh, you know, at the start of the season. So so take us through that little fiasco, if you, if you don't mind here. I guess it was April of 05. And I don't know. I, to this day, I don't know. I mean, they told me it was because they're opening a new stadium, um, which Toyota Park, which was the first and only 100% publicly funded soccer specific stadium in America, um, for better and worse. I'm, by the way, I'm not a, as a taxpayer in the United States, <laughs> I don't believe sports facilities should be 100% publicly funded. I think a private part uh, public-private partnership is the best. That being said, my job at the time was to get the best possible deal, and that was the best possible deal. I got 100% publicly funded stadium. And I was told that when I got fired that they didn't feel I was the right person to generate the revenue streams they needed to make that new stadium a success. Um, I don't know why, because the previous years we were amongst the league leaders in, in all the revenue streams. But it was, you know, when bad things happen to you, I'm sure you guys all have the same thing, same experience in different ways. At the time, they sound, they seem really bad. They feel really bad. But it 
oftentimes is for the best. It, it, it leads yeah. you, it forces you down a path you wouldn't have taken otherwise, and it leads to good things. And that was certainly the case for me. You know, uh, I've had some wonderful experiences since 2005, and I have no regrets. Yeah, I, I just found it interesting that the people were so behind you, all the fans there, Peter, which is such a credit to you. And yeah. they came out and protested. What, what you oh, didn't yeah. share with us is how much, you know, they, they protested, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in, in, in that you, you shouldn't have been fired. I appreciate that. And what I also appreciate is that that, that game, that first game when they protested, um, uh, we won. I think it was against San Jose. And I think it was two to one. And after the game, the, the, the team gave me the game ball. And oh. that, that, that meant a lot to me. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, it is. Yeah. And fellows, he's also a member of the Chicago Fire Ring of Fire, by the way. So, yeah, which is in, in yeah. very, very, very um, distinguished award uh, and honor. So, so from the fire, you sort of drift, you go through some things. Talk about... Uh, and I don't know too many people know this. You tried to actually bring an MLS team to Milwaukee and you uh, were pretty well, you, you failed, but it, it wasn't because uh, people didn't want it. It was because of power brokers who really got in your way. So share wow. with You're us much knowledge. Um, uh, share yeah. with us, you know, the, 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 the quote, who were the power brokers in the city of Milwaukee at that time? And why the hell were they so scared of you bringing a team? Uh, Bud Selig, Herb Cole, the owner of the Milwaukee Bucks, uh, their fraternity brother at University of Wisconsin, a high-powered attorney named Franklin Gimble, and then tangentially their friend or cohort, the mayor of Milwaukee, who is a good guy, Mayor Barrett, and a great ma a mayor, uh, but somewhat understandably, he's not going to go against the whim of the owners of the Milwaukee Brewers and Milwaukee Bucks. So we had the idea, our, our, our ownership group, of building a soccer stadium, a sports facility on this land in downtown Milwaukee where there had been a freeway spur that had recently been torn down and surround it with um, mixed use development, residential, retail, commercial, uh, and some educational components to it as well. And use the incremental tax revenue from that to subsidize the construction of the stadium. And uh, we were told by the city, no, and the city was looking for plans for this land. And we were told, no, uh, we won't support that. We won't give you the zoning you need for it because that space is not appropriate for a sports stadium surrounded by mixed use development. So, uh, you know, fast forward uh, 10 years later and it was still empty. Fast forward another five years and there's a sports arena with a mixed use development around it. It's just indoors. It's Pfizer Forum for the Milwaukee Bucks. Mm. Interesting. Very interesting. interesting. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. We, we, it would have been, I mean, an MLS team back then was priced at $20 million, although 
we understood that that was a soft 20 million. <laughs> <laughs> and we had the ownership group that had the financial wherewithal to do it. We had the Wisconsin Youth Soccer Association committing well-heeled financial folks. I, I think it could have worked at the time. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it's fine. Milwaukee's a funny city. You know they almost had an NHL team. Yeah. While I was with the Milwaukee Admirals, the Bradley Center was built to get an NHL team. And our owners of the Admirals, Mr. and Mrs. Pettit, were billionaires, had the financial wherewithal, and they had applied for an NHL expansion team. But then... Uh, was it the Cleveland Barons or something that uh, was sold for $30 million and the NHL. And I think it was John Ziegler was looking for $50 million for an expansion team. And the Pettits were incredulous. They were like, why are you forcing us to pay almost double for an expansion team? What an existing team just sold for. Right. And out of principle, I mean, they could have afforded the 50 million. That wasn't the issue. But out of principle, they said no, and they turned the NHL down. Oh, there you go. All right. So you stay in the Midwest. Uh, the Indy 11 story is very interesting. Uh, so sort of give us a little history because, you know, we're now we're talking the NASL, which is not the MLS. And... There were some, you know, I think a really famous team we all know called the Cosmos that played in the NASL. So share, you know, why you wanted to start a team in Indy. So I think that was the NASL's uh, tagline that you just said, NASL, not MLS. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So when NASL 2 started, I applied to be the commissioner. Um, and I made the short list, maybe a little surprisingly is, uh, I think I was in the final two, um, David Downs, was that who it ended up being? I think it was David Downs and myself in the final two. Yeah. I, I interviewed for it in Miami and it was an awful interview. It was unfair. I was at a league board meeting and they brought me in, in between agenda items, when they had the lunch on the, you know, on the buffet table there on the side. And they asked me to make a presentation while owners are up in the room walking around, having side chats, checking messages. And plus I, I was just awful. It was a bad presentation. I wouldn't have hired me either. I didn't blame them. They didn't hire me. Uh, that being said, um, they told me they still like me. Hmm? and said, stick around um, the league. Don't go running away. We'd like to have you run a team at some point. So they finally contacted me and said, we got an owner in Indianapolis, Ursel Ozdemir, who wants to have a team in our league, but he doesn't have anyone experienced to run it. And so the league made the marriage between Ursel and myself. Um, I went down there. Memorial Day weekend of 2012. It was Indy 500 weekend. Yeah, Memorial Day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Spent the day with Ursal, um, probably six hours with him, which 
Bushy knows Ursal, and we both love him, but six hours with Ursal is a long time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that, that could be like six days. <laughs> yeah, uh, but we, we, we hit it off well, and uh, he, he took me around town, and I didn't know Indianapolis. It was, that was my big challenge with Indy 11, is that I was a carpetbagger, man. I didn't know the market, and when I got the job, I recognized that was my biggest shortcoming, and I had to resolve that. So I did a couple of things. I, I surrounded myself with Hoosiers. With a, you know, Tom Dunmore, who's, I mean, by the way, wherever I've had success, I hire a really smart person that's hardworking, that makes me look good to be my right-hand person. And in Indy, it was a gentleman named Tom Dunmore. He's now a, a marketing guru for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. But he was a friend of mine in Chicago. He actually helped me with the Chicago riot. Uh, he may or may not have had his uh, green card at the time he was working <laughs> for the Chicago riot. <laughs> um, but I got to know him well through that and hired him in Indy 11, by which point he did have his green card. And I was able to hire him to be our um, vice president of, of marketing and operations. And other than Tom, everyone else who, Tom is from Chicago, but before that is uh, from Brighton, England. Other than Tom, everyone on the staff was from Indiana and especially from Indianapolis. And that helped me, it complemented my shortcomings and it uh, helped the community trust what we were building. Um, I also did something that most people think was just me being goofy because sometimes I'm goofy. I went around the state of Indiana over the next couple of years and made a point of visiting every county courthouse in Indiana. And there's a lot of them. There's 92 of them. And most of them are absolutely gorgeous. Uh, but I also posted it on social media so people could see that I was making an effort to learn about the history of the state. So I would post fun facts about every small town I, I went to. And I'd do it on weekends where I didn't have any work or if I had a business trip in Cincinnati, I'd stop at, uh, what is it, Greensburg, where the tree's growing out of the county courthouse and um, take pictures of myself in front of it. And people would think it was kind of fun and goofy and I'd eat breaded pork tenderloin sandwiches because it's the state sandwich. Who knew? Indiana has an official state sandwich. Uh, <laughs> but that, it, it, it truly did make me understand Hoosiers better. And I think it helped them um, respect and trust me a little bit more. But I love my time. Who was I talking to the other day? Oh, James Cormack. Uh, Bushy, you know Cormack. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I told him I miss, I said, I love what I'm doing. I love um, starting another team. I love Chicago, uh, but I miss him and I miss Indianapolis. I miss the people of Indianapolis. It's the real down-to-earth folks, and we just had such a good time. The, the, the social aspect of Indy 11 was, was really terrific. We did not have success on the field um, the first year, a couple of years, but uh, 2016, that spring season, is something I'll never forget. Well, Deutsche, to go back yeah, to hang, hang on one second. Hang yeah, on yeah. one second here, Bushy. Yeah. Because he, he I, I think unfortunately, and I gotta get him to talk about it, the how he cultivated 
the the fans there with the Brickyard Battalion. And Peter, I want you yeah. to really delve into that because you sort of just like, you know, lightly talked about what you did in the community, but this was humongous. You know, you really got in uh, with them uh, and this supporter group was just phenomenal. So yeah, but I, again, first of all, we'll see, if you want I, to add anything onto that, you know, please do. Yeah. yeah, no, it's not what I did. It's what they did. The Brickyard Battalion existed before Ursal planned to do this team. The Brickyard Battalion existed before I planned to come down there. Starting in 2009, started with eight like-minded soccer fans uh, that thought, Indianapolis should have a pro soccer team. Let's do something about it. They created a virtual soccer team in Indianapolis. You know, in the <laughs> days of the internet, you're able to do it. They, they started a Facebook page for a team called Racing Indy FC. They made their own colors, red, white, and blue. I'm sorry, no, green, black, and white. <laughs> I came in with Ursal. We changed their colors to red, white, and blue. They wanted it to be green, black, and white. They made their own scarves. They made their own jerseys. They had a virtual team, and they grew from those eight originals to 40 to 60 to 80 by the time I came down uh, three years later. So I came down in 2012, and there's 80 of them that were relatively active. They'd have meetings. They'd get together, talk about how they can build this thing. I, I was probably the spark that got it going, and uh, Ursal was the money. You know, you need both those things. Yeah. And it grew from 80 to 800 within a few months after I came down and uh, using their lead. You know, I'm pretty good at kissing babies, shaking hands, and <laughs> town halls and stuff. And I did that. And the Brickyard Battalion helped. They set up some of the town halls. They promoted the town halls. Um, I gave them access to what we're doing. I, I showed them what we're doing, what our vision was. I asked them what they wanted. I made it accessible for them. They appreciated it. They were part of the team, inclusiveness. You give them a vested interest in it, they'll have the emotional connections and be part of it from the ground up. And by the time we started our, our first game, we had 7,000 season tickets and 2,000 of them were in the Brickyard Battalion. Sold out every game. Yeah. The Brickyard Battalion was sold out. The 7,000 season tickets we made available was sold out. And the 11,000 seats in the stadium, Carroll Stadium, was sold out. <clears throat> the big mistake I made was not selling more season tickets because we could have. I stopped season ticket sales November 11th, 2013. That was like five months before our first game. I stopped it because I wanted enough seats left for single game buyers and group ticket buyers because, oh, there's another hockey story for you. The Atlanta Flames. Remember the Atlanta Flames? They didn't stay in Atlanta long. No. Year one at the Omni, they sold out every game because they sold season tickets for every seat in the house. Well, after Tom Lysiak got suspended for half a year by tripping a referee in a very bad way, and the flames went down in flames, the fans got tired of it. Those initial uh, flames fans, they didn't renew their season tickets. And because there were no single game buyers or group buyers to also experience NHL hockey in Atlanta, there was no one to take their place. Mm -hmm. So I learned that lesson. 
that you don't want every seat to be filled with a season ticket. So I stopped it at 7,000 and we had to work our butt off that year to sell out every game. We did, uh, but it would have been a lot easier if I would have sold 2,000 more season tickets. Bushy, I know you wanted to jump in and say some stuff, so go right ahead here. I was just going to say, I think the, the cool thing about Peter, you know, I was around him in the early days in Chicago when I get called up and that sort of thing. Then, then you know, he brought me to Indy shortly before he left. I think, you know, the cool thing I'd like to see was he was always a man of the people. You know, he was a man with the players. He was a man with the fans. And that's why he could walk back in, you know, to – it's not called Toyota Park anymore, but whatever it's called now – you know, at a fire game and everybody's going to stop and see Peter and everybody's going to talk to Peter and they're going to buy him more beers than he can drink, you know, <laughs> because they love him. And and the same thing here in Indy, you know, when, and I don't know if, you know, if you've ever told this story, Peter, but when we won that spring championship or didn't want him on the field and we told him that's bullshit because he's the one that brought us all there. And we want, when we got that trophy, we wanted him on the field with us. They weren't going to let him in the stadium. And we, and the player said, no, he, he's a big part of this. Yeah. And so they wouldn't let me on the field. They let me in the stadium. Okay. That then. Okay. <laughs> you know, they, they didn't want me on the field because yeah, I had, I was transitioning out. Um, I was still the general manager, but the president role had turned over because I had moved down to Chicago and I was upset when I yeah. was told I wasn't going to be on the field. And when I heard you guys wanted me down there, it, it made me so happy. And, you know, one of the greatest things is that photo, the team photo, getting the platter. Yeah. We didn't get a trophy. We got a platter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it's, it's the team. Yeah. And there's Colin Falvey lifting yeah. it up. And I'm on the right side of the, the team uh, yeah. in my salmon colored shorts. Yep. I'm, I remember the salmon colored <laughs> yeah, salmon colored shorts. Shirt. Yeah. And being part of it. And, and the other guys are over on the side, the, the, the suits. The suits mm -hmm. are over on, on the side and not in the picture. Yeah, they were not, bit of pleasure yeah there. they weren't happy with that. So <laughs> fun fact for you, Deutsche. I was not yes. in that I was not in that picture because in the stadium, when you go after warm-ups, you got to go into a, a little little locker room, right? So they gave it, the league decided to give it to the guys right after warm-up. And we were like, no, either do it before the warm-up or do it at halftime or just you know, because you gotta go back in this locker room, or whatever. I think I was the only one. I was already in chain. So I'm actually looking through the window, like watching Peter and everybody raise it. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I'm like, we got a freaking game. Can we not play the game for God's sakes? So I will never, I'm never in any of those pictures. But uh, I do remember watching you guys through the window, through the girls' locker room watching it. That's hilarious. Bushy, where do you rank the Carolina 4-1 victory to clinch Oh, it was it was great. The spring I mean, going championship that, among yeah. your best moments. I mean, going into that game, knowing we got to get four goals, you know, and 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 to win it. I mean, is and and I don't think anybody gave us a chance either. You know, I mean, it was no disrespect to you know Carolina. It was Carolina. We knew we'd get a couple, but I think it was what was it two one three one something late. You know, toward getting late in the game, and and I just remember when we got to fourth, I ran over to, to Hankinson and, and Regan and was like, we got what we need, right? Like, you guys double-check each other here. We're good, right? Because <laughs> I'm going to go back here. I'm going to waste as much time as I can. <laughs> um, so, but it, no, it was awesome because, again, it's, you, you know, I, I mean, I've won Supporters' Shields. I've won uh, Open Cups and that sort of thing. But to do it 
with a group of guys in the minor leagues with, you know, the stories we've talked about and everything that, that goes into it. I mean, we were that, that team was, uh, you know, I hate to say we, we were a bunch of misfits, you know, and like, it was one of those teams that it happens every so often that it just kind of comes together. You know, you're not sure how, I mean, you look at some of the guys and some of the names and, and, you know, it just, but it fit that year, you know, and we had good pros that just knew, Hey, on a Saturday night, it's time to get to business, you know, and, and that sort of thing. Um, you know, but even, I mean, I remember Lavelle was suspended for that night, you know, and, and Lavelle and I most days saw eye to eye. Some days we didn't see eye to eye, but he was the first one to jump out of the BYB. And next thing I know, before I've even moved, he's hugging me and I'm going, Oh shit. It's Lavelle. Yeah. Hey, all right. You know, and next thing you know, the fans are running on the field, you know, and for me, I thought the coolest thing was, Again, being older, I mean, I was, I don't know if I was quite 40 yet or, you know, pretty much almost 40. Um, you know, and you got Brad Ring over there drinking a beer with the fans in the middle of the field. You got everybody running. And I literally, I actually just kind of, I stood in the goal and actually backed into the net. And it was cool for me because I was on the BYB section or, or side. So as soon as the whistle blew, they all literally ran. They came, hugged me, and then kept running. You know, and I... <laughs> I just took it in for a moment. Cause I'm like, this is really cool. You know, like this is really cool. I don't think I would have got the same being on the other end, you know? Um, but it was, I mean, again, you guys score four goals and we did it. And uh, you know, it, it was just, it was an awesome feeling. It was an awesome feeling because again, I don't think anybody gave us any chance to not only to win that, that night, but to, to win the spring championship, you know, and then we go to the finals and, if I could actually kick a penalty kick, we may have had a different story, but uh, I, I'm one and done. That's it. I put it, I hit the statue over me and I'm done with it. So I, I want to ask Peter and John uh, about the spring and fall championship season. First, John, do you like it as a player? Uh, and then Peter, do you like it as an executive? So John, why don't you start? I thought it was a cool concept again, you know, I mean, I played my whole career with one season and now all of a sudden, you know, my last two years, I'm doing a, you know, I'm doing a, a spring and a fall. Um, I liked it. I think the, my only maybe difference was I would have, if I had any say in it, I would have made it a little bit more even the amount of games, you know, in each half. Right. Cause we only had 10 in the 10 in the spring and 20 in the fall. Or, or whatever it was, yeah. something like that, you know? Um, so you had a longer fall. So the spring was like a sprint. You know, I think that year we, I, I think that first 10, we only won maybe five, but we didn't lose, right? We just kept tying. And so we, you know, we, we, we beat New York on, you know, at the, at the very end there. So, um, you know, and then you get to the fall and we had already qualified. So it didn't really matter what we did. We knew we were already into the playoffs there. So that was a little bit interesting as well, trying to manage. But again, we had a, we had an older group and they knew what it was about, you know, and I don't think we really had any, any big slumps that I can remember, you know, we, we had maybe hit a skid here or there, but by the last couple of weeks, it was like, okay, you know, we got to get ready for the playoffs, you know, cause we're in and we, we knew it. Um, I thought it was cool. You know, again, I thought it was cool because it was just a different aspect. Um, like I said, I just would have – I would have even the, even the games out in the spring and the fall. Yeah, I, I like it because it gives meaning to uh, the second half of the year. 
for teams that have a bad first half of the year. Basically, if you don't have promotion and relegation, you got to do something to keep the end of the season meaningful for teams. Right. That being said, I'd rather have promotion and relegation to give meaning to every game rather than have a split season. Gotcha. Which is a good segue. But before I get into that, um, you know, you, you sort of drifted with, uh, you know, on the female side, which is fantastic, you know, WSA, w, WPS, uh, the, the NWSL, as you mentioned at the start of the show with Chicago. Um, what, what did you think maybe you took from the female side that you didn't expect maybe that it hit you right in the face that you weren't expecting to? Oh, I think the athletes themselves are much more motivated to uh, promote the team. I mean, they, they live for the culture of, of the team. Um, signing autographs for them is not um, a job or a chore. Or doing a player appearance isn't a chore. And I'm being a generalist on this. I mean, it's unfair to Bushy and to guys like C.J. Brown who were great at it and loved it. Uh, but by and large, I think men's players, um, it's, it's, it's not what they're living for. For women's players, and I think in part because they see women's soccer as a movement, a mission that represents more than just the sport, but the culture, um, the societal need to advance women. And so they see their efforts promoting the team in promoting gender equality and opportunity for women. Gotcha. You know, you, you, tell us the story of how you end up with Forward Madison back, back in Wisconsin, because this, you know, is really, really, you know, what I would consider the grassroots of, of minor leagues. Um, why did you, again, you know, you told us why you did Indy 11. Why did you want to do Forward Madison so bad? So... At the time, I was trying to launch NISA, the National Independent Soccer Association, and it was like herding cats. Uh, <laughs> my late business partner, Jack Cummins, and I were asked to start this new league by the leadership of the NASL and the NPSL as a third division pro league to kind of connect the two, connect NASL and NPSL, and Institute Promotion Relegation. And we're like, okay, you know, we had been trying to start a uh, NASL team in Chicago and we were uh, sabotaged on that one, shall we say. Uh, and so we're like, okay, let's, let's try to start this league. And then when we started doing it, they had infighting and all of a sudden everyone went back to their respective corners and tried to do the same thing. So you had the NASL trying to do its own version of an independent league. You had the NPSL trying to do their version of it with NPSL Pro. Um, you had the guy in Florida um, trying to do League Zero or, or something, which is going to be a similar thing. Uh, and, 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 and then you had us, NISA, trying to do an independent thing. So like three or four different versions of independent soccer, they all saw MLS and USL as the enemy. 
The truth was MLS and USL wasn't the enemy. U.S. soccer wasn't the enemy. It was ourselves. We were our own worst enemies. And um, I couldn't get eight teams on board. You needed eight as a minimum to meet U.S. soccer uh, league standards for sanctioning. And, you know, I'd get to seven, then it would drop to five, and go up to six, drop to three. Never got to eight that at the same time would say we're in it. Well, one of the teams I was trying to recruit for this was in Madison. It was the owners of the Madison Mallards minor league baseball team. And they were in, they were out. They were in at the end if they could start in 2019. And NISA just wasn't there. We, we, we weren't able to, to get going uh, for 2019. And so Madison said, sorry, we're going to go to this other league, USL League One. They claimed, they told me, I don't know if they're just telling me this to feel good, but they said, we preferred NISA, but <laughs> you, you weren't ready to go. And I said, well, I'm not having any luck then. Um, you're starting a team in my home state. I live in Milwaukee. I said, what do you say I help you start it? Uh, and they love the idea. I mean, and I love the idea. And so we kind of knew it was going to be a short-term deal because they're operational owners. They knew baseball. They knew marketing. They knew Madison. They didn't know soccer. And so they brought me in to kind of uh, teach them soccer and get credibility, I think, with the soccer fan base in Madison. And it was fun. It was one of the most enjoyable experiences of my life. It was similar to Indianapolis in the way we engage the, the, the soccer culture, the fans there. And um, we had more fun, I think. Um, Madison's a quirky town for those that haven't been there. It's, it's very young and uh, having fun was maybe more important than winning. Um, but we, we did a little bit of winning. We made the playoffs the first year, the year I was there. Uh, but uh, we had more fun than we won. <laughs> What, what do you what do you credit the attendance to? I mean, you're very humble, but I mean, you averaged over forty two hundred people. Yeah. For, wow. for, for for yeah, which like, is incredible. Um, yeah, no, was it, it just the community or? It was a what, number of factors. It is a good community. I mean, you know, people say, well, you don't have to compete against pro sports in Madison unless you consider UW football, basketball, and hockey. <laughs> I mean, yeah. They may not pay their pay their athletes, but um, it, 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 it's, a, it's a challenge from that respect. But it's, it's um, good demographics there, good soccer demographics, uh, good ownership, uh, good staff. We're able to use the baseball sales staff, which is really uh, talented. Uh, in the ownership, they knew their sports management uh, we hired some really good people, in particular in marketing and social media, and Kuba Shisostaniak and uh, Jason Klein. So, again, really good people. Uh, Kuba was that aforementioned right-hand person who makes me look good. Um, and then we had a unicorn of a stadium. Bree Stevens Field, uh, the right capacity, it's got history. Jesse Owens raced there. How cool is that? Wow. 
I mean, it's uh, about a 90-year-old stadium, uh, and it's in on the isthmus in Madison, on the east side of the capital. The east side of uh, Madison on the isthmus was kind of a, a bad neighborhood for for a while, uh, but about five or ten years ago, it started to make a comeback. It started to gentrify, and by the time we started the team it had become a hip and trendy area, apartments booming around it, restaurants, music venues. Uh, and so everything just kind of came together. Uh, and again, I did the, 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 the baby kissing and the handshaking thing. Boy, uh, breakfast, lunch and dinner and drinks after that, I was meeting with people, one-on-one, -on -one, small groups, large groups, town halls, spreading the gospel, man, and enjoying every minute of it, not complaining. Uh, we also got the flock. Um, so I went to the only soccer bar in Madison when I started out, actually before I started out, and told them what was going to happen, the leaders of the um, EPL supporter groups, the Arsenal supporter group leaders there, uh, Andrew Schmidt and Liam Smith are two of the most talented um, supporter leaders I've ever met. And they, they were at the time in charge, they still are in charge of the Arsenal supporters group in Madison. And as well as the Chelsea United, Liverpool supporters, uh, Spurs supporters. And I talked to them all about working together to support pro soccer in Madison. And I, I must be a good salesman because they agreed to do it. And they formed the flock, which is pound for pound, the best supporter group in the country. I mean, they do it for the right reasons. Um, they support their teams and they support nonprofits in Madison. They, their values are outstanding and they make the games fun. I mean, you, you can't have anything uh, better than that. to Berlin, when they came to the States for their tour that year, um, they said after our game, and maybe they're just saying it again because they want us to believe it, but I believe it, that they had more fun at the Madison game than anywhere else on their American tour. And that's a credit to the flock and the environment. The, the, the venue is, is pretty special. Yeah. What, um, all right, so now you're, you know, with Chicago Nisa, uh, the Chicago house, again, uh, this, this, I, I'm wondering, go to the support side. So have, have you already done and laid the groundwork as far as in the neighborhoods near Bridgeview to self-sustain your, uh, your, your team here? Or what's the strategy? So Greg, I don't know if you've heard this, but there's a pandemic going on. <laughs> it's, yeah, but we're, it's also called social media. Ah, oh, okay. There so we I'm go. Not yeah, it, it, it's different. It, it, it's more difficult um, getting that grassroots support in a, in a pandemic. Uh, we are, we're using social media, um, you know, virtual, um, the telephone, emails, uh, and it, partly my legacy. I'm fortunate this is the fifth time I've run a team in Chicago, the fourth time I've started one from scratch. So people kind of know me and um, fortunately, I think 
until about a year ago, the fire had been shooting themselves in the foot for a decade. So there, there's this void, this room to, to build a, some fandom. And um, we're really leaning heavily into being a um, fan first organization. Um, we've, we've brought together a fan advisory council to guide us every step of the way. There's a, a dozen or so folks that we talk to every day on Slack, every week on Zoom like this, and we talk to them about what decisions we have. Uh, we bring them into the loop on things and getting their input is really helpful. We do the same thing on social media, especially Twitter and Facebook. And so the, the, I think we have office hours every other Friday where we open it up to the public uh, our chief operating officer and myself, um, Night Train Vec, and, and give updates on what's going on. And then we open it up to the chat room to ask questions and we answer the fans' questions, kind of bringing them in um, under the roof of the house. I can use that analogy now. And, and again, hiring talented, hardworking people with good character that respect fans. Uh, Night Train Vec, I mean, he's my... Cuba, he's my Tom Dunmore, my Steve Pastorino, um, my Marsha McDermott. I mean, I've been very fortunate wherever I've gone to have these folks. Uh, Night Train Vec has a very familiar last name. Uh, his father is known as a very fan-friendly owner in minor league baseball, the St. Paul Saints and Charleston River Dogs, and that's Mike Vec. And uh, Night Train's grandfather is in the Baseball Hall of Fame for being fan-friendly, Bill Vec. Back, he owned yeah. the Chicago White Sox when I was a kid and was my hero. And I try to operate soccer teams the way he operated baseball teams. So we've got a, a bit of a heritage there of being fan friendly and we're just kind of going about it the same way. What, what do you personally expect when you open uh, in uh, August? What do you feel the average attendance will be? You know, this is going to sound weird to say this, but I almost don't care what, how many people we get. I mean, I'm a part owner of the team, so I suppose from a business standpoint, I should care. <laughs> and I know my business partners care, uh, but I care more uh, that whoever does show up has a good experience, you know, and that they feel welcomed and inclusive feel like they belong. That's, Train and I uh, have been using that word belonging quite a bit lately. Um, a lot of sports teams in the past couple of years, especially with Black Lives Matter and um, gay rights, uh, human rights being unfortunately um, diminished in the United States, a lot of teams are rightfully leaning into it. Uh, Colin Kaepernick has a, is a big part of that. And, and, and and it's wonderful that he's essentially given up his career, the latter half of his career, in order to do the right thing. And so it's good that teams are kind of leaning into it. With Chicago House, we're jumping in with both feet up to our neck. We're all in. In fact, over our heads. We are all in on being a progressive organization that's taking a social justice platform that uh, is committed to equal rights, diversity, inclusion, community engagement to make Chicago a better place 
for the underserved, especially for the disenfranchised. And if we can make our games that positive experience for those people, and a lot of them are black people in Chicago's South Side or West Side that frankly don't know or care about soccer right now, but we're gonna be welcoming to those communities. Not only those communities, we're gonna market and promote to new Americans, especially Latino communities, Eastern European communities, young adults, the hipsters in Lincoln Park, the suburban fans uh, in Palatine and Naperville, but we're also going to be inclusive uh, for black Chicagoans who haven't always been reached out to by Chicago sports teams. And I understand that they're not all gonna uh, embrace us and that's okay. Uh, but I think if we're sincere, consistent and authentic with our messaging, they'll feel welcomed and we'll all be better off for that. And we're making our staff on and off the field and our team on the field reflective of that diversity. Uh, we're gonna be a majority people of color and women organization on the field. We hired CJ Brown, a black man to be our head coach. Um, his assistants will be women and or uh, people of color. Uh, so if we do that, it's not just to say that we're being progressive and doing the right thing, although that's important. It's because if a sports team representatives reflect the values and look like the community they serve, they'll be more successful. They'll, they'll understand their community and they'll make the community feel more welcome. So Phil Anschutz in that 15 minute job interview I had, um, he said one of the most wise things I've ever heard. He said, if you get this, uh, this job, I'm gonna ask you to start a charitable foundation uh, for Chicago MLS. It wasn't even called the fire yet. He said, why don't you do that? Because it's the right thing to do because you're, we're expecting a lot from the community. So it's important to give back to the community. And also good works is good business. Um, and that's true. It shouldn't be the main motivator of why you do it, but it's true. If, if, if we're sincerely good and work to make Chicago a better place, uh, we'll be rewarded for it. I want to ask this white elephant question in the room. You've never started this journey with another MLS team in your city, which is a first. What challenges do you have? Because it's almost like they could be saying the same thing as well as you guys, maybe in a different tone. Um, now, they've failed before, whereas you have a brand new start. So where, where's maybe the difference here, in your opinion, as you get on this uh, program to be different? I don't know. I think it, in a way it's easier with an MLS team in the market because there's something we can point to to say we're different than that. Or we don't have to point to it. It should become self-evident as we build who we are. Look, Buenos Aires has 18 professional soccer teams. Okay. They, they're not all the same. They each represent something different, a different neighborhood for sure. Um, so ge geography, there's something different. Most of them represent different socioeconomic classes or different religions um, or, or, or different founders. There's something that gives each 
fan base a reason to support this team instead of that team. Chicago's got 9 million people. Okay, they don't all like soccer, so it's not like the fire and us are competing for 9 million people. But about 3 million care about soccer. You know, um, out of those 3 million, the fire doesn't need, nor is it getting 3 million people to go to their games. An MLS team or any team, if they want to average 20,000 fans a game, they need about 110,000 unique individuals a year to go to their games, to average 20. It's you know 5,000 of that 110,000 are season ticket holders. And then maybe 20,000 go to two to four games and 70,000 go to one game. Uh, to get back to your original question, Greg, uh, our pro forma, and I'll be real transparent with everyone here, our pro forma is 5,000 paid fans a game, okay? So that's what I want. Um, I'll be dis disappointed from a business standpoint if we don't get 5,000 people. But we don't need 3 million people coming to our games, unique individuals. We don't even need 110,000 unique individuals. Um, we need more than 5,000 because I don't think we're getting 5,000 season tickets. Uh, we probably need about 40,000 different people. 40,000 out of 3 million that care about soccer. So you take those 110,000 unique individuals or hopefully the fire is an even better year and they average 30,000 fans a game. So maybe it's 200,000 unique individuals going to Soldier Field. There's still 2.8 million people in Chicago that care about soccer that aren't going to Chicago fire games. All I need is 40,000 of that 2.8 million. So we can build another point taking this progressive platform we recognize that that's not for everybody there's some people that say politics don't belong in sports and by the way i agree with them i hate politics i like human rights i don't think human rights are political uh, but there's some people that think human rights are political and they may not want to go to our games because we stand for gender racial and sexual preference equity, uh, that's BS, but that's their right. They, you know, in the restaurant business, there's a saying, there's some customers you want to go across the street to your competitors. And that's how I feel about it. Um, and if we take a stance on this sort of thing, the people that are passionate about those issues, that do care about it, they'll see us and say, ah, I can relate to that. They have our values, my values. I'm going to support them. So uh, New York and LA each have five or six pro outdoor men's soccer teams. And there seems to be room for them or more. Um, Chicago only has one until us. And you can make a good case that having additional teams is good for the team that was there previously. Um, the best thing to happen to the New York Red Bulls was when New York City FC came in. It forced people to make a choice and it forced the Red Bulls to create an identity as New Jersey's team. And they weren't trying to be all things to everybody. So I hope Nisa, that's one of the things I love about Nisa. Everyone talks about promotion and relegation. The best thing about Nisa is that they don't offer territorial exclusivity. In fact, they threaten you with it every day. 
was on an expansion committee call today and they were talking about a possible second team in Chicago. And they said it in a way they thought it would scare me. And I'm like, no, bring it on. <laughs> I want the competition. Sorry. Well, let's, been- let's talk a little bit about Nisa, you know, uh, why, you know, obviously you just mentioned the promotion relegation, but how many teams are going to be in it this fall to even make it worthwhile to do that? <laughs> Not enough. It's a long-term vision, obviously. So Nisa started last year with eight teams. They got the eight that I couldn't get. And um, they added Chicago, Maryland, and Rochester, New York markets. So that's 11. And there's a good chance by the time we start in the fall, there could be one or two more. So my guess is 12 or 13. Oh, yeah. Plus Stumptown is coming back. I think San Diego is coming back. They could have 13 or 14 by the fall. Not enough for promotion and relegation. But this is during a pandemic. Nisa's adding half a dozen teams. Mm -hmm. NWSL, USL League One, USL Championship, MLS combined didn't add six teams during the pandemic. So I think that says something about the attractiveness of the Nisa model. And being on the expansion committee, I can see the pipeline and it's pretty good. So I feel comfortable saying that Nisa will get to 20 teams within a couple of years. Uh, that being said, the nature of NISA having a low barrier to entry, meaning there is no expansion fee. It's free to get in. Four of us could pool the money we have in our wallet and pay the expansion fee because there isn't one. Um, that's good and bad. Um, it's good because it's democratic. It doesn't serve as an artificial barrier. Uh, but it's bad because it probably lets in some investors that probably shouldn't be in. And so I think and when my Jack Cummins and I started the league, we told each other it's going to be a bumpy road. It's going to be dynamic is a nice word. There's going to be um, exp- exponential growth, but there's going to be a good number of teams that don't survive. One thing I like about Nisa Nation, which is the amateur um, level, the full season or long season amateur level beneath Nisa Pro is that not only is it an incubator for future NISA Pro teams, it can also serve as a soft landing. So if a, a team bit off more than it could chew by trying to go pro and it wants to keep going, but not at the pro level, it can continue in NISA Nation. Well, what do you think the level of competition, and Bushy, I want to hear you chime, chime in and Evie as well, uh, between NISA and USL, you know, two. Because to me, it looks like you're two right on top. You know, USL League Two? Pardon me? Are you saying USL League Two or USL League One? USL One. I'm sorry. Okay. Where, where do you think the, the difference in competition is? The level? I, I don't, it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, I think, you know, I think if you look at the NA, you know, for me, if you look at the NASL, I mean, we have a lot of, like ex MLS players. And I thought, yeah, we didn't have, we didn't have a lot of teams per se, like USL did, but man, some, some of those games and most of those games were, you know, we had some good players. We had some good players. So I think, you know, look, I mean, I'll be honest, everything Peter does, you know, he's genuine when he does it and is any successful when he does it, you know, and, and I know what CJ is going to bring to the table because I played with CJ. Right. He's he was a no nonsense guy. All right. He'll tell you like it is, but he'll give you the same thing. 
you know, and, and he's one of the few guys I, I will go to battle with any day of the week, him and Armis and the, the, that whole mentality back in the day, Logan pause. Right. So I know what CJ's bringing and he's going to demand it from his players. It doesn't matter if they're, they're making a lot of money or a little money, right? He, he's going to set the bar high and he's going to expect that out of his players day in and day out. Um, I, I think that, A, I think they're going to be very successful in Chicago because the one thing Peter won't say, cause he, he, he wants to be politically correct over there. And I'll just say it cause I don't care if Chicago <laughs> fire doesn't get their shit right. Peter's going to take over everything because everybody loves Peter in Chicago. So if they don't get on the, sh- if they don't get things right, it, you know, I, I could, I could drastically see fans going, you know, I guess you can say back to Toyota park to support a different team. Now. I think the two leagues, USL league one and NISA, it's, it's going to be fascinating. They're, I don't want to say mirror images, but there is a difference. Obviously, USL League One has MLS two teams in there. And some of those MLS two teams are really good teams, North Texas. And some of them aren't even really teams. They're collections of individuals that don't perform well in in the field. So it's really odd. Um, And then the independent teams also wide range. There's no collective bargaining agreement, obviously, so there's no salary cap. And oftentimes you get what you pay for. So the teams that are investing will have more talent anyways, uh, better chance of success. Uh, NISA is all over the map as well. You know, you've got some community clubs uh, that are, it's really cool. And I'm hoping there's more of those. Chicago House is not this cute, fun, nice community club rising from the grassroots story. You know, we're a little bit of an 800-pound gorilla coming in in terms of, of, of lower division soccer. The Maryland Bobcats are that community club. I love their story, frankly, better than I, I like the Chicago House story. And I hope there's more of those community clubs, uh, whether it's you know, the, the ultimate one is, and I'm in Milwaukee. Half a mile from me is a Milwaukee Bavarians. Mm-hmm. I mean... The Bavarians, as you guys know, has been around for 80 years, 90 years, 90 years, I'm sorry. Uh, and they do it the right way. And they've developed some unbelievable players. And Eric, at some point, you're going to ask me to answer your question from the beginning of this. Episode. <laughs> How do you develop he, players? He's answer? up next, Peter, trust me. And um, uh, if the Bavarians would join Nisa as an example, I think that could be a shining star of what this league can be about. I mean, long-term, it wants to be a multi-level league with a first division league as well as a second division league and a third division league and the amateur league that is suitable for player development at every level. You know, before I hand it over to EV, you know, we, we, we just talked about the level of play. What about the level of compensation? You know, if a player or, for instance, maybe Bushy knows someone and they can go play in NISA or they could go play USL1, what, where do you think the, the pay compensation is going to be? I'm not asking specifically, but maybe a range uh, just to maybe show what you guys or NISA is going to do. Is that for me or for Bushy? Uh, that's, that's, for you. that's for you. Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, the, the answer is not enough in both USL League One 
and in NISA. Uh, and in part because there's no uh, players union or collective bargaining agreement, I think you know one of the best developments in the last few years in American soccer is the development of the players union in the USL, USL championship and the friendly, pretty friendly way it's gone uh, down the road between management and players. And I, I hope it extends to USL League One uh, as well. Um, you know, my fellow owners in NISA probably wouldn't be fans of me when they hear, if they listen to this podcast, but um, I think NISA should also have a players union. I think it's, it's good for stability of the league. It's good for providing minimum standards of professionalism that we'll see the athletes treated the right way. And the athletes aren't being unreasonable. They're, I mean, you see what's going on with the USL negotiations, the union, the players are being reasonable. They're not negotiating for themselves. They're negotiating for the next generation of players. Uh, and yeah, I, I think if, if we don't all know it, then we're not being honest with ourselves uh, that everyone is suffering in, in uh, lower division soccer in this country. The owners are suffering because they're losing money, but to be fair, most owners can afford to lose money. And the players are playing for below how much they should be playing for. And what's sad is they, in most cases, cannot afford to be paying playing for that little money, whereas the owners can afford afford it. So it's not a good situation. Um, you know, women's soccer is the same way. Um, you know, NWSL is making real good progress with Angel City, um, and the national team players, while equal pay is still an issue and needs to be addressed, and the national team players are still making a comfortable living. The average professional woman player in America is not making nearly as much as she should. And the same for the lower division players. So, uh, so I, I don't, to answer your, your question, Greg, I don't think it matters if it's USL League One or NISA. The, the, the compensation they're making is not enough. Um, and you can have good groups of talent in NISA and bad groups of talent in NISA, good groups of talent in USL League One and bad groups of talent in League One. Yeah. All right, Evie, I know you've been sitting there patiently. So uh, what, what else do you want to rant about? Because, you know, you sure as hell did, you know, last week before I got Peter on. Yeah. So yeah, turn no, it over to you. Yeah, my, I mean, you know, I still have the question of what do we have to do to get, you know, MLS or the championship, USL championship to start bringing players up from these lower leagues instead of, you know, hitting Honduras and Guatemala, which is nothing to say. I, I'm not banging on Honduras or Guatemala, but, you know, the, the whole idea of uh, the whole idea of development, it seems to me we're missing it in soccer somehow because NFL has colleges, right? I mean, that's, they got a built-in farm league. And okay. NBA. In, yeah. In, and NBA. Baseball has had farm leagues all along, and now that's starting to change a little bit because a it's expensive, and b colleges are starting to take some of that that brunt the brunt of the expense on that uh, as 
college baseball grows. But soccer, we're just, you know, you know, like I said before, uh, I don't understand it, but if you talk to anybody, they immediately go to the U.S. national team. And great, you know, wonderful, but, you know, nobody says, hey, you know, let's, let's have a dynasty in the MLS or let's have, you know, and, and then, you know, nobody says, when I talk to kids about what do you want to do, none of them go, I want to play, you know, I want to play for Nashville SC. They all say they want to play for the national team. And I'm thinking to myself, dude, hello, you know, they don't take you from Vanderbilt and put you on the national team. That doesn't happen, you know, but some, somebody along the way has convinced these kids, this is how you do it, you know, and I'm just wondering, you know, you've been doing this at all levels for a long time. And, you know, is there, I, I was thinking about it today. Is there this unwritten secret rule in MLS that do not ever talk to anybody in USL? And I remember, cause I play, I was the coach at the Greensboro Dynamo back in the USISL days. Right. And I remember the Francisco Marcos versus Sunil Galati fights. You know, there was, they, they were, you know, we're not dealing with that guy, you know, and I just, you know, I just, I just don't understand how we're going to grow our sport. Like we all want it to grow. As you said, give the players an opportunity to play long enough to be a developed and be discovered. Right. And yeah. then make that jump, make that transition. Well, we can approach it from a number of ways. Um, I'll take two at least to start. One is uh, creating more opportunities and then the other is gonna be um, really helping with the development. For more opportunities, you're talking about a US soccer regulation. It permits eight international slots on an MLS on a first division a team and uh, seven international slots on a lower division team. Uh, if you really want to create more opportunities, you can just have U.S. soccer change that rule and say you only get five. It used to be that way, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that would mean they're, you know, that addresses your xenophobic fears of we're always going to Honduras to try to get better players. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, but we know why they do it because they're they're good players and they're cheap. You know, I, I mean, was, you know, yeah, yeah. and and. Yeah. Good, know, I, but they're good I players get that. and they're cheap. So that goes to the other part. Let's make more good American players. Correct. More development. Correct. And to MLS's credit and USL's credit, they are going in that direction. The academies they've started, uh, whether it's you know the USL Academy structure now, which is getting more and more aggressive, or um, you know. MLS next and uh, all the academies, there's a whole lot more of that now than there was 20 years ago. Yes. So if you consider that a good direction, you should be pleased that it's, it's going that direction. The dynamic opposing it is that you have a legacy of pay to play youth soccer system built into the very fabric of this country. Mm -hmm. the very fabric of, of soccer in the United States. And USU soccer and AYSO, uh, they, and, and US club soccer, 
um, they offer a lot of good things. And, you know, it's, it's like college soccer. College soccer isn't all bad. You know, it, it's, it's not generally the best for development, um, but it, not all players are there to become pros. In fact, right, 99% right. of the players aren't there to, to go yeah. pro. Yeah. And so we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm probably older than most people listening to this and they haven't heard that expression before, <laughs> but so be it. Um, so it's a tough one because to increase the, to improve, um, to improve development, I think you need more incentives. Um, you know, Minnesota got rid of their youth development academy last year, frankly, because it was costing them so much money and they weren't seeing the reward for it. They weren't developing players for the first team. They weren't developing players to sell, right? That's always the argument. Oh, sure, it's costing a million dollars a year for this academy. Well, if I sell one player overseas every four years, I'll make my money back. Right. They're not doing that. And, right. and so uh, it has to be a bit of a loss leader. I don't know. I mean, promotion and relegation, in theory, is an incentive to add to spend more money on your development because if you don't invest in your team you're going to be relegated if right. you do invest in your team you get promoted to second division where you get more money then you get promoted to first division where you really get more money so there's the incentive to the owners right now the mls owners incentive to build an academy i don't know i, I mean atlanta new york and dallas seem to be doing things the right way and maybe I threw Atlanta in there unfairly because they still just seem to try to buy their way to a championship but Dallas and New York uh, I mean the Red Bulls really seem to be doing a good job with their academies I'm sure there's others I don't pay attention to MLS like I probably should um, but I, I it, Dallas it looks like they're being rewarded for it which is kind of nice yes I agree with that Dallas is Dallas is and has been you know they were so if we had 28 Dallas yeah. Academy systems, you and I wouldn't have this conversation. Right. You're like, hey, everything's great. Yeah. But my question uh, is, my question is, where is the is it the leadership that's saying, you know what? And I, I agree with you. You know, there's everybody's putting money into the youth programs, and you 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 occasionally get the trickle-down kid who's you know 14 or 15 who's really good, and we signed him as a homegrown. But Correct me if I'm wrong. Shouldn't there be like 30 of those guys, you know, every year? And 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 we put them in a league and we see if they can do it. And if they can't, you know what? You know, fine. You had a great you had a great career in the minors, and a lot of guys do. A lot of, you know, and particularly as you know, in the in the in hockey, you know, there's guys that play in the AHL for 15, 16 years, maybe go up to the NHL for a cup of coffee. But they're still, you know, they're still good players and they still made a living and they still, you know, uh, were right there. But, you know, we, we, you know, and, and all four of us here have seen, I mean, there's kids out there that can play, right? Does the MLS think there's kids out there that can play? I don't get that impression. I, you know. Yeah, I don't think it's universal. I think some markets do. Do you? And, and some are willing to invest in. And, 
to be fair, most MLS owners aren't doing this to make an operational profit. At least I hope not because they're not. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I think they're doing it for a lot of reasons. It's maybe it's good for their ego. It's a vanity play. It's good for their community. Um, and they know if they hold on to the team for 10 years, they can sell it for more than they, they bought it for. Uh, and that being said, if, if they really, if they were on this call and had part of this conversation right now, I'd like to think a lot of them would say, yeah, investing in these academies and getting more kids in the pipeline and better training uh, is, is the right thing to do, even if I'm losing an extra $500,000 a year. I hope they would. But to be fair, I think more and more teams are, and I think the whole shaking up of U.S. youth soccer and MLS next and all this, in MLS's eyes, I think they're seeing that this is leading them even further down the path of owning youth development in this country because they probably think, and they're not necessarily wrong, that they're the best people to do it. Okay. All right, I'm going with you for now, Yoda, but I don't, I'm not 100% convinced here. <laughs> but, well, I, I mean, I agree. The evidence on the wall right now is there's maybe two or three teams. Yeah, that take it right serious. And 25 yeah. that are not proving it's right. Yeah. But if you compare it to where it was five years ago, 15 years ago, it's better, I think. Um, but what could get it over the top? Um, I can make a case that Nisa Pro Rel is that magic bullet but that's yeah, it's not easy to see right now oh yeah you I, squint, I, squint your eyes yeah. really tight to be able to see that. yeah yeah i mean there's you know i've i've often said this and and you know bushy and bushy and greg are sick of me hearing it but they're sick of hearing it from me but you know the other thing that's wrong in this country is and i've said this for since since i was coaching in college we have no idea where the best players are we have no idea, you know, you know, at some point, somebody's going to find the best striker in the world in West Virginia, but no one knows where in West Virginia that kid is, you know, uh, Chris Kessel knows. I don't know yeah. if you know Chris Kessel, but he knows <laughs> that kid in West Virginia. Yeah. But, you know, we, we just don't, we have no, we don't really have a scouting, you know, organization and, you know, Everybody in Canada knows where the best 15-year-old hockey player is, right? Everybody in the NFL knows. They don't, I don't care how big the school is or how small it is. They know where the best uh, defensive back is, you know, and he might be playing at, at Mississippi Valley State, you know, and they know, they know he's there. That's what, this kid's there, you know. We don't, we don't have that, you know, and, and again, to me, that's a that's a fall down on on U.S. soccer's part because if U.S. soccer is going to be in charge of soccer in the United States and be in charge of MLS, fine. If you want to be in charge, fine, but do it right. Don't you know? Don't half-ass me, you know, because you know guys guys who have who have paid their dues and you know again I'm with you. I am an old man and I am saying get off my lawn. And you know, you know, you you look back on it and you're like, the stories were great, but did you know? 30 years ago when Hank Steinbrecher was telling us soccer is going to be, you know, soccer is going to arrive. Okay. You know, and we were like, yeah, you know, and we're still waiting for it to arrive. We can see it, you know, you see it down the tracks, but it's not here yet. 
That being said, the golden generation the U.S. has right now, all these 19, 20, holy buckets. I agree. I agree. For the first time, uh, they are fun to watch. You know, they are, I mean, if even if they don't win, they go up and down the field, you know, and and they go up and down the field fast. And I like that, you know. And it but, feels like it came out of nowhere. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, five years from now, it, it could be even that much bigger than yeah. it was five years ago. Yeah. Hey, hey, Bushy, Bushy, you, Bushy, you've been a U.S. soccer scout. Am, are, am I correct? I have been a goalkeeper coach for them. Yes. Not a so, scout. So, okay. But, but yeah, there's that boundary, right, of scout and not scout. I, right. look at, I look at goalkeepers, Deutsche. I All right, look at enough. goalkeepers. All right. All right. So answer EV's question of, like, Where, when you're finding keepers, you know, Luca, can you find them anywhere you want? Luca Lewis. Yes. Luca Lewis. I know he is. I know he is. Because, so, you know. Cause, Chris Brady? Yeah. I mean, the thing that I see, Deutsche, when I did it was, you know, they, they only have, U.S. Soccer only has a few scouts. They need a lot more, you know, and, and that's that that's part of the system, as EV said. You know, you gotta you gotta turn over every rock. You gotta look in West Virginia. You gotta look in Arkansas or wherever. You know, like you you're not just going to the big hubs. Uh, I think that's number one. So the scouting system, you know, and that could you know MLS's scouting system is getting much better as well. But that could be part of it too. Um, my concern, honestly, and and I agree with Peter and EV, like. The team now is awesome to look at and to watch so far to play, and you never know where that's going to go. My concern, and Evie and I have had this conversation, is in the goalkeeping department. I'm, I'm, God forbid, if something happens to Zach, where are we going? And, and I'm not, I'm not, I, I'm not being disrespectful to Matt Turner in New England. I'm not being disrespectful to Sean Johnson in, uh, you know, in New York, New York. You know. Um, for me, I love JT Markowski over in, in uh, San, or San Jose, but he hasn't got enough games. I think he'll be our Olympic team guy. Um, but if I, you know, again, it, I'm, I'm not trying to be the old grumpy guy either, but I look back to, you know, my time in the MLS and you had, you had, you know, you had two different tiers, basically. You had a tier of, of goalkeepers. You had Casey, Brad, Marcus Hanneman, uh, you know, Jurgen. Um, you have five or six guys playing in Europe. And then you kind of had this second tier of, you know, myself, Kevin Hartman, Nick Ramundo, Matt Reese, you know, uh, Joe Cannon. And it was like, there were kind of two pools in America, you know, an MLS pool in the, you could go 10 plus deep easily. I look at it now and I go, you know, yes, Zach's our number one. And everybody I think knows that, but then God forbid, I mean, where are we going to go? You know, and, and, and Guzan's still playing at a very high level in the MLS, but I don't know if that's where we, you know, where we go back for the Federation. You know, where are we going to go? You got Ethan playing over in Europe, but he's not playing. You know, I mean, neither is Zach as much, I guess you could say, but I, I just. But there's a big difference between backing up the guy in Bruges in the Belgian League and backing up the guy in, in Manchester City. A hundred percent. Yes, a hundred percent. I just don't think we ha- we're we're not developing enough quality, at least goalkeepers now. Like I said, the 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 team itself, you know, I'm I'm excited in the direction they're going. The the goalkeeping department, it, it concerns me the depth at least. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Yeah. You know, and and I, you know, the the other thing, well, the goalkeeping, you know, and Greg, you and I've talked about this. You know, are there any? Do we have anybody? Uh, never mind. Never mind. I mean, do, we, do we do we have anybody who can defend just defend anymore? Do we have any stay at home defensemen anymore? You know, no, they don't exist. No, they don't. There's no more CJ. There's no more CJ Browns. There's no more. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? The crazy thing is, that's almost worldwide. Yeah. Right? You hear the guys talking about in in the EPL pundits about nobody can defend anymore. You know, we all want to go forward, right? Yeah. And Definitely. we can't. You know, we can't weather that. You know, I, I know this for the fact you know, on the national team level, we can't weather a 12 minute storm or a 15 minute storm where your your center backs and your goalkeepers, you know, hold the fort. Yeah. You know, uh, and that's along the lines of what you're talking with goalkeeping is where where are we going? But we're going off the we're, we're going down a rabbit hole there. Um, uh, you know, but uh, I just you know it's it's interesting to me that we have guys like Peter who go out, you know, spend their soul, spend their energy making minor league soccer and we don't take advantage of it. I just, you know, cause that's, that's where the numbers are. That's where the, the players start to come up to figure out who's, who's on the top of the pyramid. And, you know, and we, we don't, you know, we, our governing body, refuses to direct these leagues where there's lots of players and you know if there's lots of players there's some good ones right you know if there's I'll lots say, of- I, I think uh, the lower division soccer team should also take some of the blame because we want to win today so we'll sign yeah. some 26 27 28 year old players because they have experience and we won't give chances to 16, 17, 18 year old players that need the, the minutes. Right. To CJ's credit, he's he says he wants, he's not going to talk a player out of going to college. If, if it's a player that sh- the education is right. better right. out, by all means, do it. But especially, you know, in a large market like Chicago, there's a lot of players that have the ability to play pro and College is not in their future. Yeah. And get them minutes, get them training every day with the first team, and then put them on the field in real games that matter, real pressure when they're 17, 18, 19 years old. Let them make their mistakes. But a lot of these kids are more talented than their 27 year old teammates. Yeah. Yeah. But they're not getting chances because the pressure on a coach in lower division soccer is to win today. Right. That's a good point. Good point. All right. Well, we've, we've, you know, we've just started to explore this and Peter, we'd love to have you back, um, you know, again, regularly to, to, to walk us through the, you know, to walk us through the nether regions of, of minor league soccer because nobody covers it. That was one of the reasons we started this podcast was, you know, we were all Greg and I were talking, you know, everybody talks about, you know, England and Italy and Germany, you know, I'm more interested in what's going on in the United States here because they've, they figured it out in England or England and Germany, you know, but we're still, you know, we're still walking around, you know, in the dark in a round room looking for the corner, you know, and it's just like, what, you know, but 
I will say this. I, I'm encouraged, as you mentioned, by, you know, our national team now with the young guns and they're young, but they're, 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 they're babies and you know, they're puppies, mm-hmm. you know, and we'll qualify and hopefully they don't put us in, hopefully they don't, they don't put us in the snarling dog group. Cause we'll get, we'll get bitten, you know, but that's part of it too, I guess, you know? So, but anyway, I, I, I thank you, Peter, for your time. Give us, give our 27 listeners, where can they go to find Chicago house merchandise and, and more information about NISA? So Thursday, our merchandise goes on sale. We're, we're, we're dropping it on Thursday, these lovely scars. And it's on our new website, which is www.chicagohouseac.com. Chicagohouseac.com. All right. All right. And Twitter, at Chicago House underscore AC. All right. Well, there you have it. There you have it. Well, Peter, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we, I apologize for us all being late. It's Lou's fault. He had a kid, you know. He's um, <laughs> <laughs> a beautiful little boy named Henry Lewis Libertor. Good, good job, mom and dad. But uh, 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 thank you for joining us. And, and like I said, we, we'd love to have you on, you know, throughout the year because. Named after Hank Aaron or Lou Gehrig. I think they were both named Henry Lewis. They were both named Henry Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't, I, I texted him back, you know, that Hank was a fine looking young man. And I, I don't know. I don't know if they're going with Hank, you know. So I think they yeah, may go. Yeah. I mean, I think they may go with Henry. I don't know, but we'll see. I mean, I'm going to call him. I'm calling him Hank. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Hammer and Hank. Now it's great seeing you guys. Good talking to you, Bushy. Especially great seeing you, Miss Peter. You. Always good. Yeah, keep in touch, will you? Sounds good, buddy. Good seeing you, boys. I'm off to bed. All right, yes. fellas. And Peter. Good, good night, Captain. And thank you. Talk to Have you a later. Good one. Have All a good right. one, boys. Bye.